Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Politicking Podcast. Stuart, how's things been your end this week? Yeah, not not too bad, not too bad, thank you. Yeah, I'm just sort of waiting for the the weather to improve. Uh, that's always, you know, if, if the sun is shining then everybody seems to have a sunnier disposition, I think. It's painful, the weather at the minute, isn't it? Especially up north. <laughs> like, on a, knock a few degrees off up here, Stuart. But, uh, as, soon but, as, the, uh, as soon as the clocks change, everybody's mood will massively imp- improve. So it'll be fine. Only got a couple of weeks to go. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, so, yeah, so loads have happened since the last time we spoke, Stuart. Seems like it all kicked off literally a day after we recorded with the illegal immigration bill and Gary Lineker's scenario. And we've had budget week as well. Um, so that's all gone on in the past couple of weeks. I was going to suggest maybe we start with the budget and we can move on to talk a bit about the illegal immigration stuff. Um, so yeah, so just just giving a, a bit of a brief summary. So last week, uh, the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, stood up in Parliament to deliver the budget for 2023. Now, for, for listeners who don't know what the budget is, the budget is basically a statement made to the House of Commons on the state of the nation's finances and the government's proposals for changes to taxation. So I think as it's watched by a large chunk of the population as well, I think chancellors also now use it as a bit of an opportunity to push out key policy announcements, would you say, Stuart, as well? So I think that's what he used it for a bit this week. They do. I mean, budgets have become increasingly, you know, they've always been a big set piece of the political year. So the chancellors sort of, you know, one time just slightly overshadow the prime minister sometimes as well and put forward the big spending. Now, what we've seen in recent years more and more is the trailing in the media about a week or so before of some of the key points that will be in the budget. Now, they're not really meant to do that. You know, back in the, uh, you know, in the beginning of the uh, 20th century, you know, uh, you know, chancellors lost their jobs because they gave it sort of exclusive, what we'd think of now as an exclusive briefing to the Times. They, they could lose their jobs over such things. And I think it was one of the post-war, so early part of that century, uh, it, it happened, and I think one of the post-war uh, chancellors actually did, you know, had to resign because of that. Uh, Hugh Dalton, one of those sort of post-war Labour uh, chancellors. Apologies if I've got the wrong chancellor, but you know, but nowadays it's just part of what they do. They just talk about it, they trade it, so we all know about it before it's even uh, before the chancellor stands up and and gives the the speech. Ben, that's that seems to be the way of it now. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, and I think like we kind of knew some of the key. Uh, announcements coming out so I think like just just starting on some of them Stuart I think one of the big ones was around was avoiding a recession in 2023 um I mean they celebrated that Stuart but like from I mean the economy's still going to shrink by 0.2 percent so it's basically stagnant at the minute so I don't think it's something to get too overjoyed over is it no, uh, well, look, under normal circumstances, no, that would be a complete and utter disaster. But I think given the the way that the economy has been performing and the level of expectation, again, that being widely trailed beforehand, uh, this is, becomes a stunning success. You know, not having any growth, but not having any, you know, ne- negative growth, you know, I, you know, shrinkage or growth is a massive achievement. So it's very much in that in that context. Um, but you're right. I mean, I think the I don't know what you thought about it, but I mean, basically, you know, we'll talk about some of the announcements in a second, but it was all a bit low key. It was all a bit dull, really. But in that post, sorry, pre-election, not post-election, we're not there yet. In that pre-election period, uh, you know, having a dull 
budget now, so you get a really exciting one before the next election, possibly. Well, that seems, uh, you know, it seems like a good political strategy. So it's really difficult, I think, to detach the day-to-day politics from the economy and from the budget as well. Yeah, hundred percent. I know. I mean, like, I suppose talking just a bit about that, they're they're predicting like inflation will fall to two point nine percent by the end of the year, so down from ten point seven percent where it's been in the last kind of three months and stuff. So, like, I suppose if that does happen, I suppose that gives them the scope to kind of really do a bit of an exciting budget next year really doesn't it yeah it does i mean look if they get a bit of growth there there's a bit of money to splash around uh if the uh you know those inflation targets um you know it does come down to those sort of figures then uh the prime minister's met one of his sort of five pledges from from um you know just just recently you know halving inflation he'll have done better than halving inflation so again it feeds into a story of a government improving the economy in the run-up to a general election so for them that would be fantastic yeah, yeah, 100%, 100%. So, I mean, look, looking at some of the, the more kind of key announcements now in, in more detail, Stuart. So, like, for me, it seemed like it was a bit bit of a kind of back-to-work budget. So, I think, like, this comes from kind of, like, the effects of the pandemic and, and the cost-of-living crisis and all that kind of stuff. But there was a few kind of announcements on giving more kind of support to, uh, you know, for free childcare for working parents. So, I think they've extended... Um, 30 hours of free childcare for uh, families who have one and two year olds on, on universal credit. Um, and then there was also there was also things around returnerships, so like their the, the kind of skills training to the over 50s and, and skills boot camps are seen as well, some announcements on that. So a lot of this seemed to me like it was to try and boost productivity, um, you know, in the economy and stuff. Would you say that's right? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's the, the economy has struggled in recent years and there are various reports on this but productivity remains a problem for the UK economy as a whole so governments are desperate to come up with ways to make the UK workforce the economy as a whole more productive so skills investment you're right Ben is is entirely in that sort of in that sort of area but it's also about investment by businesses as well we need to sort of up you know it's not just upskilling but uptecking as well which I've is a word that I've just made up. Um, uh, but alongside that, you've got bits of the economy over 50s that aren't really you know, in work as much as they were, particularly post-COVID. But also, we have job vacancies, which were filled pre-Brexit by people coming to this country and doing you know, the sort of jobs required. So if the, if the government can't make us more productive... And get more people into the uh, the economy, more people working, then we've got a serious bottleneck, and that will throttle off any potential growth that they're hoping to deliver. So I think you're right. You know that, that some of those announcements there, childcare, you know, is is a is a is a is an economy productive thing, rather than just being about actually let's make. You know, let's deal with the cost of living crisis. It sort of does both, but it is about getting people back into work as well. Yeah, because I've seen something like the over 50s, especially like since the pandemic, I think they took like a lot of them have took kind of like early retirement or something along those kind of lines. And um, basically, I think that kind of generation now are really like economically inactive, which I suppose isn't helping that productivity gap. And it won't be just kind of them, but it's just interesting that like that's kind of the effect of the pandemic. And like you say, coupled with 
the Brexit situation and, and more people leaving the country and stuff like that, like it's really not going to help that productivity gap, really, is it? No, um, and and it seems to be that the other another major challenge for the over fifties is around um, long term health as well. Yeah. So if you add in long term health problems exacerbated by COVID, if not caused by COVID, I don't, you know, um, uh, plus the sort of the, the shift in attitudes towards work and early retirement and, you know, from, from that particular generation, then you seem to have this sort of perfect mix of, of, a, of, a, of a potion. I'm going to mangle my metaphors and things here. But anyway, <laughs> uh, that's, uh, that's, that's poisoning the economy. There we go. We can say that, you know, it was, this mix is poisoning the economy. You know, sadly, uh, as I get more uh, into just, just only just, I hasten to add, get into that, that generation. I don't feel myself um, uh, uh, for, uh, able to afford to be either sick or, um, uh, or less productive. But hey-ho, I'll, I'll put that to one side. <laughs> I mean, well, that takes us nicely on to uh, cost of living. And I mean, everyone is struggling with the cost of living at the minute. But there was some, some big announcements on, on that as well. Um, so just looking at kind of some of the key ones. So I think the cap on energy bills is due to remain now to, at 2,500, which has been extended for another three months until the end of June. So I think that basically means energy bills will stay at a similar level as they are now. Still absolutely sky high, but um, better than the situation. I think they were, they were looking at extending it to £3,000, weren't they, the cap? So like that's, I suppose, a bit of positive news, really. Um, and then seeing fuel duty rates will remain at current levels for additional 12 months as well. Um so that never moves some, though, does it? it? I mean, you know, it fuel duty, you know, to all intents and purposes, they might as well just, uh, I'm going to uh, uh, exaggerate here for effect, they might as well just scrap it because it doesn't go up. Yeah. It, it, you know, it's one of these things that there's always a campaign on and they go, and it's another ringing endorsement for the Daily Mail or the Sun or the Telegraph that fuel duty hasn't been extended again. Now, you know, I, I appreciate the impact, particularly on rural economies of such things. On the other hand, if it's not going to go up ever, then... Why have it? What impact does it yeah. have? And actually, does it help transport policy as a whole? Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. Um, I mean, the, 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 just looking at some of the other ones as well. So, hundred million pound for charities and community organisations to support, I think, more vulnerable residents in in uh, society who perhaps local authorities can't reach. So, I mean, it's welcome news. We'll see what the actual detail of that is soon. And then £60 million to support swimming pools and leisure centres with energy costs. Now, I know a lot of a lot of leisure centres have been kind of struggling with that at the minute, and I know a lot of councils are looking to close this down, so I'm sure that'll be really welcome as well by um, councils. I think for me, Stuart, the big one that I, I thought was missing was anything on housing, because I think you know local authorities are seeing a rise in, in the number of uh, people presenting as homeless in, in their borders and stuff, and I... I I think this is going to be the real next crisis for cost of living. So I was a bit surprised not to see anything on housing. And, and not just that, you know, I'm I'm kind of 29 and I'm approaching 30. But I, I, fortunately, I've got my own house. But like a lot of people are struggling to get on the housing ladder. And it, like the cost of living crisis has, has just made that even worse. It, nothing in there either to support people actually getting on the, the housing ladder either. No, I think look, housing is along with sort of social care are sort of two of the really big issues that, that governments across the piece are, have struggled with for years. Um, 
on the one hand, you want house prices to continually go up because it makes people feel they've got more money, whether that's real or imagined. It gives them a something to pass on uh, to the future generations if they're fortunate enough to own a home. And at the same time, the real impact you've outlined, but you know, for for young people, is they just can't you know they can't get a house. They just can't get one either because it's too expensive. Uh, also helped or not helped by the fact that in a lot of areas we just don't build enough houses so it's a, again it's a sort of a perfect storm of affordability and availability you know coming together and governments don't seem to be able to to, to crack that um partly because it is about planning reform and planning reform is about making things easier to build and that upsets a lot of people not just conservative voters, I hasten to add, but just people generally. Once you know, there is a bit of a you know, there can be a bit of a nimby uh, reaction amongst people. Um, so that sort of rules that out, and then they'll offer some financial incentives every now and again, which they have done in the past. Not always very well taken up um, by people. Uh, so it doesn't change. It doesn't change. So now I'm with you, Ben. I mean, I think you know, and budgets increasingly. You know, and the next one before the general election, if it is before the general election, if I was a younger person, I'd be looking at that and thinking, you know, there's a real danger of this being about cementing, apologies, you know, the older vote, older conservative vote generally, uh, rather than thinking about the real challenges which younger people face. I think there's a, you know, uh, you know, an emphasis on division amongst the generations which I feel as being I suppose somewhere between the two if I can say that yeah but my kids are younger they're going to be looking for places to have their own you know not too distant future they're not going to be able to do it yeah yeah and I I mean just going back to kind of the people who are kind of in a real dire situation as well who've maybe you know a lot of people I think are looking to sell the houses at the minute so obviously they can't afford to kind of have multiple properties i mean it's nice to be in that situation but they can't afford to have multiple properties so people that they're kind of renting their house out to they're having to sell that house because it's too expensive for the owner to kind of have the private renters are then being kind of kicked out of that house that they're kind of looking to see if there's any other houses in the area to to rent but then because all the prices have kind of shot through the roof since the last was looking for a house to rent they can't afford that either now so they're they're presenting themselves as homeless I, I think Stuart a real problem I, I think is the lack of focus on building more social homes and council homes to be honest because and affordable homes as well but I, I think with them too you know that like social housing waiting lists are at record levels now and I think like something really does need to be done to kind of tackle that and I think a big a big issue is around right to buy which was kind of introduced by Margaret Thatcher years ago and stuff, but yeah, I for me, I I think it's that lack of focus on social and and council housing. To be honest, that's really causing these major issues for people who are on on kind of the breadline. You're right, and no, you're entirely right. Uh, I concentrate on the sort of private, strictly private sector, but yeah, social housing, council housing, you know, other forms, shared ownership, etc., are all you know models that are that are available. You know, it could well be as part of devolution for whichever party. Maybe local authorities get a bit more in the way of control over, you know, local housing to, to you know, to develop what's, you know, so they can develop what is required. 
you know, locally. But again, you know, for those that work that work brilliantly in some areas, and, and you know, much less brilliantly in others. If you if you're, you know, trying to find housing in a you know a city like you know Liverpool or something like that, then you know, your city centre, it might well be that okay, you can get the land or the buildings, but you know they're sort of you know industrial land which all needs cleaning up. Mm. Or converting because yeah. they're listed buildings and those sort of things, you know. And I know we, you know, politicians will always say, "Well, we'll do brownfield first, so we'll do the the stuff that you know is already being developed once, and we can sort of then turn it magically into housing or some mixed use development, or whatever." But the costs involved in doing that can be absolutely enormous. And again, if we're back into, you know, if we think back to the the constraints that local authorities, and again, Ben, you know much more about this than I do, but you know that have been put under then they don't have the cash. They just don't yeah. have the money to do it. So some, again, if we're, if we're going down a route of saying, right, okay, it's devolution and we will give local authorities more control, we will give them more ability to do some of these things, more levers to pull to help their local communities, well, then we have to do something about the finances that come with that as well. Yeah, I think it, it's years of policy failure, really, Stuart, isn't it? You know, and gone, like you say, gone are the days with when councils with the, the big hands to kind of give out support to, to residents and stuff because they just don't have any money they've just been cash strapped year on year on year kind of thing by um government so yeah i mean one one that's probably going to take decades to to sort out but um yeah needs needs addressing urgently i'd say um so just looking at the the final few announcements i wanted to, to quickly look at so there was more money for levelling up announced, so I think there was a few few kind of areas you missed out in the last round, and I think there was a bit of uproar over that. So I think more money for them than kind of areas, so that's kind of good news. Um, and 12, 12 investment zones announced as well, followed by eighty million pounds of funding for for those areas. So I think all of the investment areas have been announced in combined authority areas. And I think basically what they're looking to do is enable the development of high potential knowledge intensive growth clusters across the UK. So I think I think this was originally Liz Truss's idea, if I'm right in saying that, and it got watered down a bit when um, Rishi Sunak came in. But I think the idea is really to, to create kind of growth hubs um, in different kind of combined authorities across the country. So I think eight of them are in England and then four are in the devolved nations. So just be interesting to see what comes from that but i think a lot of it is around single year uh, funding packages and um, business rate support all, all things like that to just basically address local productivity barriers i think so it'd be interesting to see i don't know Stuart, if you you've seen anything on on that well i think only i mean you know you're right liz trust was a big fan of these sort of uh you know investment areas and it was promising a lot more it seems to have come down to 12 I mean, one of the key challenges is is that it just you know, and where there is an investment zone, it just doesn't pull investment and jobs and opportunity away from adjoining areas to that investment zone. And I don't think the government has really been able to, you know, talk about how they can prevent that from happening. So effectively, you just shift. You know, instead of creating new economic development, you shift economic development around, you know, within an area. Um, and look, you know, it always sounds fantastic to look. We want high tech, we want high productivity, etc. Yeah, of course, we do. All governments want to do that. But 
how is it how is it supported? How's it doing? If it's year on year pots, as you mentioned, Ben, that's not gonna help. It's gotta be it's gotta be longer term, medium term at the very least, but certainly not not that short term year on year uh, sort of arrangements. Look, and also what may the Labour government or uh, the Labour government a Labour government if they are elected, what would they be? Would they stick with them or not? So you know, do they get announced and there's a year of an investment zone and then it basically gets abolished because Labour come into office? In which case, they're not even worth doing. So there has to be, ideally, some sort of cross-party consensus on these things as well. And, and that doesn't, I'm not as, as far as I'm aware, I don't see much of that, really. Just to finish on this segment, Stuart, like, I noticed a lot of these announcements are for... 2024 to 2025 but there are some that go past 2025 as well when obviously a general election will have taken place like if if we do have a change in government what happens to these these announcements do they just get knocked on the head or like will they continue or, or what? yeah they can do i mean a new government can come in and do whatever it wants frankly i mean i, I paraphrase hugely but that's that's the reality of it um if there are policies they don't like taxes they don't like approaches they don't think delivers for their priorities they'll change them now they could change them immediately they could change them over a period of time you know there are different options but it is up to the the government of the day uh, to do that so yeah anything anything could change fair dues i think i think that's a good place to stop so we'll just have a, a quick break there and then we'll be talking about the immigration bill and the gary lineker situation and we're back uh, and we're talking a bit about the immigration bill situation and the fallout with Gary Lineker's tweet and things like that, which was absolutely ridiculous, Stuart, I, I thought. And it, it it all happened the day after we recorded the last podcast, Stuart, which was a bit annoying for us. But um, just to give a brief summary in case you've been living on Mars for the past two weeks. But um, So I think Suella Braverman kind of came out and announced that she wanted to produce this immigration bill. And basically, I think the immigration bill just knocks all rights on the head for uh, illegal immigrants in the country. So I think, and I think there's a bit about deporting illegal immigrants to Rwanda, and and there's all stuff around modern slavery rights as well. So that I think they get taken all all those rights get taken away from them as well. So, and I think what what kind of happened was Gary Lineker, he just came out and tweeted um, that they're using language similar to that of Germany in the 1930s and the uproar that followed that was I've never seen anything like it Stuart I don't know about you but it was absolutely ridiculous um and I think that the focus of the debate got put more on Gary Lineker and the BBC and and what they're going to do with him and stuff like that rather than the actual situation about the immigration bill um so I mean what what did you make of it Stuart did what, what what was your take on it yeah, you're right. I mean, this is a controversial piece of legislation. You know, it evokes huge reactions uh, for and against. So you either think it's the fan- most, you know, the best thing since sliced bread, because frankly, you know, the small boats and illegal immigration is a massive problem, and therefore the only way to do this is to basically stop people from coming here, so disincentivize, you know, coming to the UK, or along the lines of Lineker, you know, this is, you know, terrible and why the rights being taken away from people, we're in danger of breaking international law, which on the face of the bill, it doesn't really say one way or the other whether it does or doesn't. So that's that's interesting from the government, you know, what the government are doing there. Uh, so it leans, and again, we, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about this every week, really, or every time we talk, but it's cultural stuff. 
So you get a reaction against Gary Lineker's tweet, you know, outraged that there anybody there is even a vague suggestion that this is similar to the Germans in the thirties and Nazism, extended Hitler, you know. So even though it doesn't actually say those things, that's what the suggestion is that he was talking about, even though he wasn't. That's you know that's what uh, you know politicians, certainly conservative politicians, were sort of. Uh, you know, angling towards and then talking about, you know, my children and my grandchildren are, you know, sons and daughters, etc. of, uh, you know, those that survived the Holocaust, etc. You know, and, and then they sort of conflate all these issues together in their outrage. Now, he didn't say that. It was all about the language. Now, um, you know, you can interpret, again, you can look at these things in a couple of ways. Now, did it sort of deflect from the bill itself in a way that the government wanted to deflect? I don't look at this quite controversial bill over here just let be left with the impression that we're doing something but then look over there at Gary Lineker because we don't like him and he's always been and he's only he's always been anti-Brexit and we don't really like him anyway he's a bit the lefty type and he works for that lefty institution the BBC and look they don't balance and this all plays into that cultural stuff now that's all well and good but actually as you've rightly said the conversation even on that part of the debate around the legislation became about well hold on what about BBC what do you do on uh you know other presenters what do you do on balance because the chair and that you know alleged loan and or there was a loan the alleged involvement uh of the chair you know you've got um trust members that are x number 10 etc so actually I don't think it did them huge amounts of favours. And also the idea that came out that there were 30 odd conservative MPs that wrote sort of uh, uncoordinated, probably, i.e. coordinated, to complain, suddenly looks like a bit of a witch hunt and actually then starts reflecting, puts the conversation around the conservative links and balance in that direction as well. So I'm not sure it did them any good. It certainly didn't do the BBC any good. I mean, they didn't come out of it with flying colours at all and the way they handled it was 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 pretty poor um but i don't think it did the government too many favors either really even though that's what they were you know trying to you know get some good coverage for the bill and also some bbc bashing in there as well two bites to the cherry for one story i'm not sure it did either really yeah so i was gonna say like who do you think came out of uh, this whole debacle better do you think it was more the conservatives or or labor because it felt to me like they were trying to pin Gary Lineker, all on kind of Labour's side, and they wanted really him to, him to align with Labour and the lefties and all that kind of stuff. But I think Labour did quite a good job of sitting back, letting it all unfold, and just seeing what the kind of outcome was from it, and, and letting the public kind of make their own mind up. Yeah, I think so. And about I'm the only person that came out with any flying colours with Gary Lineker himself, frankly. You know, yeah. Uh, you know, he's back on Match of the Day now. Uh, Were you? wasn't presenting the FA Cup the other day because he had a bad throat, but, you know, he's back on match of the day. Now, whether his next contract, if they renew his contract next time, has a stiffer social media clause in there, yes, I would imagine it, it will do. And the BBC will look at its social media guidelines again, which actually I think are pretty good, generally. But, you know, they'll look at those again, they'll review them again. Um, but, yeah, the other people sort of stood back and just let the government and the BBC sort of kick themselves into a bit of a submission really um i think it's more about what it says about the way that the election will go you know? yeah and we've we've had reports in previous weeks we've had sort of leading you know conservative uh leading 
you know, business uh, supporters, for, formerly of the Conservatives, now, you know, shifted across to Labour, you know, talk publicly about, you know, the approach for the Conservatives at the next election will be around culture wars. It will be around, well, singling out uh, communities uh, in that sort of way. The anti-woke brigade, etc. Now, yeah, we've just got to watch out. We just we that's 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 the way the election campaign will go. If we're worried about Gary Lineker from the BBC here, there's we can just have more of that. Less debate yeah. around the issues, arguably. So less debate. And I know you want to we want to talk about a bit more about the bill in a second, but you know less debate about the the bill and the issues, and more on noise around what's going on. Yeah, do you, th- do you think that's going to be the Conservatives' tactic then? To to because re- I I think Labour want to stay away from that, and I think La- Labour really do want to delve more into the, the political issues and the actual like the detail of issues and things like that. But it seems to me that they really, yeah, they want to hang the hat on on culture wars, don't they, at the minute? Yeah, look, and again, you know, I don't think uh, you know this is necessarily hugely different from what's gone before, you know. The Conservatives have often wanted to lean on to sort of, you know, crime and punishment, law and order sorts of issues. You know, Labour are, um, you know, in speech marks, you know, soft on law and order. They let the, you know, the criminals get away with it. Da, 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 da. So, you know, that that was always the accusation in the past. That's partly really why, you know, Blair had tough on crime and tough on the causes of crime to sort of nullify that. So I'm not, I'm not sure this culture war thing is necessarily new, Um but there are just, you know, there are different issues that come up as part of, you know, that. And, and look, you know, I think Labour, you're right. I mean, you know, in that sense, Labour is a bit more managerial. They probably do want to talk about some of the detailed policies a little more. Uh, the Conservative Party, not least because the Conservative Party has been in power for a very long time now, so it's becoming more difficult to talk about, you know, you know, detail. But also, Labour is acutely aware that on some of those issues... Uh, they are out of step with some of the voters they need to get back on side to win a general election. You know, people, again, mass generalisation, but if you look at the polling, small votes, people want to be sorted. You know, the idea to anybody that you can have sort of have unprotected borders just seems a bit weird. It just doesn't really seem to fit. So, you know, even even to those voters uh, on the left, some of these things are, you know, not completely unnatural territory, but certainly to the voters that Labour need to get back, they're out of, you know, potentially sort of out of step. So, you know, so whilst Labour, yes, they do want to talk about some of the detail policy, they're also trying to avoid it because they know that, you know, for a lot of the voters they need to get on, you know, back on, on side, they're not necessarily chiming with them on those issues. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes complete sense. Um, so, I mean, just wanted to look at like the next stages of the bill and, and where we're up to with that. So this week, I think it was voted to progress the bill to the next uh, stage in Parliament. So I think there was 312 votes to 250 in favour of, of progressing it to the next stage. So I think this means it'll get a second reading. I noticed no Conservative MP voted against the bill, even though there was rumblings from a few that they might rebel against it. What 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 do we expect to kind of happen next then, Stuart, with that? Yeah, I mean, look, I, the Conservative uh, MPs, you're right, there have been a number that have sort of made it known they don't like some pretty fundamental elements of this legislation. They all seem to have bitten their tongues and, and you know, abstained at the very least rather than voting for or against. Um, but they're keeping their powder dry. They may well vote against it at later stages as the bill 
part you know goes through second you know now it's had its second reading and and through so in effect at second reading you know in the commons mps will say look we like the general principle you know we're okay with the general principles of what the bill is trying to do and the detail then comes in the later stages in the committees and uh, report stage and third reading and, and other you know stages in the, in the legislation so effectively what the tory mps have done is look in broad principles we're okay with this but we want to see the detail so effectively they've reserved their right to you know vote against it or to you know to to you know, to, to, to campaign against it at when once they see that detail now let's see if they do let's see if the government can get them on board or uh, in its current form, it may well have a rebellion on their hands. But again, whether that rebellion will be big enough depends on the detail. So uh, it's difficult to tell at this stage, but it's not that they've all sort of, you know, backed down. They're just they're just biding their time. Yeah. And I mean, I'm expecting kind of protests against the bill to continue. I think I've seen recently the Telegraph reported over 300 academic experts in immigration have signed a joint letter to object to, to the bill. And um, um, lefties, left, they're all lefties, lefties etc. Et yeah. That 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 will be the culture war yeah. thing back. You know, that's so. In some ways, that's exactly what the government wants. They want all these sort of you know right on academic types, academics, same as lawyers are all lefties. Therefore, it proves that they're right. Yeah, I mean you're right because I think Jeremy Corbyn joined marches in London as well against the bill this weekend. So like like you say, it just adds fuel to the fire. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, what better way to show that this is a you know. You know the usual lefty sub sub uh, uh, you know suspects. Uh, you know particularly Corbyn. Um, therefore, they're doing exactly the right thing. Yeah, and do you know? So I have seen as well. Suella Braverman was in Rwanda this week. So I'm guessing she's trying to get this over the line, unless it's already been done, Stuart. I've not really fo- uh, focused too much on the Rwanda stuff. But does she need to do anything to to make sure that like legally she can deport illegal immigrants to Rwanda? Is is that why she's there this week? I think this week, I mean, the visit was more around showing what a wonderful country Rwanda is. And, you know, I'm sure it has its, it's fantastic parts as well. I, I've never been to Rwanda. Um, but I know there are others that say that, you know, it's not the shining light of, you know, democracy that, you know, the government are trying to claim that it is. I, I'm not going to say one way or the other because I, I don't know uh, well enough. Um, but there was a picture that circulated on, on Twitter of, of her, you know, on this, you know, visit to you know, where people would be deported to sort of laughing her head off and, and you know, in a, in a way that Twitter gets outraged, it is one of those images which may well get, you know, used to show how, and I, again, speech marks, you know, heartless or, you know, so if you don't like this particular approach, that image would, accom- would, would, would show you that you are right because, you know, the Home Secretary is seen to be sort of laughing, you know, in, in, in that sort of setting. So... Um, but no, uh, but it does, you, Ben, you, you raise a, a, you know, a wider point, which is that, you know, unless the government is absolutely clear on every single stage of this bill, and even if they are, once it's passed, it will be challenged. I can't for a, can't for a minute imagine that all those lefty lawyers, as the government would see it, uh, but those standing up for human rights as, you know, defenders would see it, will challenge this bill. They just They just will. Because there's so much the government isn't really sure yet that they can do legally. So, it, you know, whether anything will actually happen 
in the short term. The bill itself will, but in reality, will the measures included in the bill happen anytime soon? I don't think so. Uh, does it enable the government to then, before the next election, go, look, we've passed this legislation, it's being you know held up and we need a majority to make sure that this never happens again? Da, da, da. Yes. Yeah, no, fair enough, yeah. Because I think like there's, there's got to be, you know, all I'm hearing at the minute is this this basically every aspect of this bill is unlawful and um yeah like they're not going to be able to kind of pass it under human rights laws and stuff like that so like i just i can't see this being the end of the, of the kind of debate on the bill i think this is obviously going to rumble on you know you're right then i mean it's, you know they'll they'll go through parliament they'll be outraged there may be people that vote against it etc etc but the chances are it'll go through parliament but then once it's exposed to the real world and those legal challenges that's where it all starts to fall apart Oh, well, we'll have to wait and see on that one. But um, I think, Stuart, that, that brings an end to today's podcast. So thanks again for joining me. And, uh, yeah, we'll be back in two weeks to, to talk more about what's happened recently. I'm sure something's going to take place tomorrow because that's normally what happens with these podcasts, Stuart. So we'll, uh, we'll get into that then. But, um, yeah. Thanks, Ben. Cheers. Thanks all for listening. Take care. Bye-bye.